Church, he is risen. Isn't indeed. Let's do that again. He is risen. Isn't indeed. Amen. Well, we praise God. Every Sunday we gather, as I uh, mentioned, as a mini Easter. Each Sunday we gather on Sunday to worship God, but today and next Sunday we'll be celebrating in a unique way, remembering the events of the empty tomb. And as we walk toward the empty tomb, we've been in the Gospel of John. And what we saw is, on Friday, the most powerful, glorious, heartbreaking event in human history. We call it Good Friday because it's the best news we'll ever receive that our sin has been dealt with. Now, in John's Gospel, before we land at the resurrection, I want to point to two things, two men. There's a man named Joseph of Arimathea. When Jesus is crucified, he's crucified and he breathes his last at 3 p.m. At 3 p.m. each day, what they would do is they would have a daily sacrifice. Yet on this day at 3 p.m., it was the Passover lamb sacrifice for the nation. And what would happen is the high priest, he would come out and he would blow the shofar. It's like a trumpet. It's a ram's horn. And all the city of Jerusalem would hear that the sacrifice had been made. And it's at that 3 p.m. shofar blowing, that trumpet blowing, that Jesus screams out the words, it is finished. And Jesus had been condemned to death by the religious leadership, yet there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea in John chapter 19, verse 38. It says this, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission to take the body. Now, Joseph, we hear about him in Scripture. We see from other gospel accounts that he's not just any Jewish man. He is an actual member of the Jewish ruling council that was called the Sanhedrin, made up of 70 men that ruled the nation. These were the 70 men who met the night before Jesus died and would vote would have a trial, an illegal trial, and they would condemn Jesus Christ to death. But yet Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but he remained so in secret because he didn't want to deal with the condemnation that came from the Jewish people. Yet here at Jesus' death, he steps out and he goes public. He goes public what he does. He takes his family tomb, and the way a tomb worked at this time is... Tombs were very expensive, and they'd be used by a family. They couldn't be used by anybody outside of the family. So you would wrap the body in spices, and you would put them in the tomb, and the body would remain there for about a year. And a year later, you would come, you would take that body, all that was left was bones, and you'd put the bones in what was called an ossuary box, 
about like this big, about as big as the longest bone in our leg, and they would store all the family bones in the tomb. So Joseph, he essentially gives his tomb to Jesus because once Jesus uses it, either he has to say he's a family member or he has to give it to him for good. And Joseph steps out and he's taking a great risk. He's part of the ruling leadership, yet he will take that risk because he believes Jesus is the Messiah. Yet he doesn't understand resurrection. In verse 39, listen to what it says. It says, Nicodemus, who also had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds or 34 kilograms in weight. So Joseph, I mean, Nicodemus, we've seen him in John's gospel three times now. He wraps Jesus' body in these expensive spices. Nicodemus was also a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. So these two men who had secretly been disciples of Jesus, who were a part of the ruling council, watching this council condemn Jesus to death, watching this council reject Jesus as the Messiah, is at this point, this point, these two men say, no, we believe he's the Messiah. We believe so much we'll give him our tomb. We believe so much that I'll take 75 pounds, 34 kilograms of expensive spices and wrap his body in that. Well, these men, at this point, without a doubt, their reputation within the Jewish leadership would have taken a hit. In fact, what they've done could put their very lives at risk because Jesus, according to the Jewish law, has been uh, declared and condemned for blasphemy as a heretic to die and they have aligned with him because they believe and they're willing to deal with the consequences here. Well, that puts us to where we come today. Today we're going to see the tomb. I'm going to read the passage, and you're going to hear a few words several times. Notice, you'll hear the word tomb over and over again. That's the scene of where this takes place, is at a tomb. And get this, the tomb is a, it's a place of death where you bring dead bodies. You're going to hear the phrase linen a few times. I'll show you why that's significant. But the word I want you to pay the most attention to the word I want us to observe the most as we walk through this that, that speaks to us is the word to see or saw in the past tense. That they're going to they're gonna see something. So we're going to read our passage today. We're in Luke, I mean in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. And if not, the words will be on the screen and you can follow along. Let's stand for the reading of God's good word. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken my Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside weeping outside the tomb. And as she went, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've lain him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word does declare that all of us, all men, we are like grass. And our the grass of the fields and our grass flades and the flowers fall. But Lord, your word, your word is what stands forever. And Lord, may it be your word that is faithfully preached today. Unless you speak, we recognize nothing of any significance is spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, my wife, Margaret, and I were watching a, uh, a movie this week. It was a fictional movie. Not necessarily one I would recommend, not because of content being inappropriate, just because it was a little ridiculous. But it was about a couple of pastors. It was a fictional story, but one of the pastors, Easter was coming, and he felt the need to do something spectacular for Easter. He felt this pressure to, to do something really big that would wow everybody and amaze everybody, and everybody would look and go, wow, look at what's happened. 
And the other pastor kept saying, well, isn't the gospel enough? Another pastor said, well, well, people won't pay attention to the gospel unless we wow them and amaze them with something. Well, church, I'm here to tell you, today we have nothing that should wow us, amaze us, and cause us to stand in awe outside of the good news of Jesus Christ, that our sins have been forgiven, and that there is an empty tomb, that he is risen. That is amazing enough. And lest we come here and we've heard it before, so it becomes a little callous to us. We lose our amazement at the gospel, our amazement at what these disciples saw that morning. It starts in verse 20, verse 1. It says the first day of the week. I mentioned this before. This is why we celebrate on Sunday. Every Sunday we gather to worship and we do it for this reason. You and I are quick to forget the power of the resurrection. We're quick to forget that we live in light of the resurrection, that we have a resurrected Lord and that's who has redeemed us and saved us and we're secure in this. And as we go out this week and every week and we encounter a world that does not live for the Lord, that is lost and broken, we need to gather with the saints and be reminded. Gather with the saints and worship our risen Savior. So we do it on the first day of the week. The Jewish people did not name the days. The first day of the week is simply the day that we commonly call Sunday. That's why we worship each week. And it says a woman, her name is Mary Magdalene. Now Mary is one of the most common names in the Bible. We first hear it with Moses' sister. Her name is the Hebrew version of Mary, Miriam. But then we see Jesus' mother named Mary. We see two of the disciples, James and John, their mother's Mary. We see the wife of Cleopas named Mary. So this is a very common name, and it's often easy to confuse many of the Marys. But this Mary, she's designated by her hometown, Magdala. Magdala is a small little village. It's actually a fishing village. It's on the Sea of Galilee, just down from where Jesus lived. The next city down from Capernaum is Magdala. That's where Mary was from. And she was a woman from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. And she was a disciple of Jesus, one of his followers. Not one of the twelve disciples, but she was a follower of Jesus. She believed in him. She trusted him. She loved him. Some speculate that she may have been the prostitute who wept at Jesus' feet, but we can't say that for certain. But what we know is that she had a deep love for Jesus, and he had transformed her life. She gets there early in the morning while it's dark. Now, from the other gospel accounts, we know there's other women that come to the tomb that morning. John focuses on Mary. And look at her response. In verse 1, she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Now, this word for saw, to, to visually see in the Greek, this word means to just glance. She just notices it. 
But she's not focused on the fact that it's rolled away. She's focused on other things, but she sees that the stone is rolled away. Now, the stone is rolled away not for Jesus. Jesus didn't need to have the stone rolled away to exit the empty tomb. He could come out without that happening. No, the stone is rolled away so that Mary and the women and the disciples who would follow, so that they can come and look in the tomb, so that they can see that the tomb is empty. So her response in verse 2, she runs to get Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, two disciples here, Peter. Here he's called Simon Peter. Sometimes he's called Simon, sometimes he's called Peter, sometimes he's called Simon Peter. And it's as if when he's in his flesh, he's more referred to as Simon. When he's the rock who, who speaks the truth, they, they often refer to him as Peter, but here he's called Simon Peter. So he's sort of this guy, he's just denied Jesus the night before. Think about how fresh that wound is on Peter. The last time he remembers Speaking of Jesus and watching, he, saw, he denied, I don't know the man. Now, the other disciple with him is John. John was the disciple who went to the cross. He was the disciple who stood there, and as Jesus is on the cross, he asked John to take care of his mother. Peter, he's the oldest disciple, most likely in his early mid-twenties. John is the youngest of the disciples, most likely still a teenager. And it's these two disciples that she runs to. Peter is the leader of the disciples. In this culture, Hoover was the old, oldest among a group like this would often be the leader, and that's what Peter is. So she goes and finds them, and she tells them, they've taken our Lord from the tomb, and I do not know where they've taken him. So they both run to the tomb. John, who wrote this gospel, makes a point that he was faster than Peter. He wants us to know that. I don't know that it's significant in much way. But look at verse um, 5. It says, So stooping to look in, he, this is Peter, saw the linen cloths lying, or this is John, I mean, saw the linen cloths lying there and did not go in. This word for see here, again, it's just a glance. He just glances and he sees what's going on. But Peter runs up in verse 6 following him and he went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now the word for Saul used here in verse 6, it's a different Greek word. It's a word that has the idea of this, that you behold it. You know, we all glance at things. You just glance, you see it, and you keep your eyes keep moving. But then there's things that you will look at. You, you'll process. You'll wonder, what's going on here? What is this? And that's what Peter does. Peter sees the linen cloths lying there. Jesus' body had been wrapped in these linen cloths. We see... It has some significance. They wrap him in 75 pounds of spices, but they look, and it's just the linen cloth lying there. Now, do you remember when Jesus raised Lazarus? How did Lazarus come out? He came out wrapped up. 
He, he couldn't move. They had to come and unwrap Lazarus. Why? Because he didn't rise from the dead with a new glorified body. He rose with that same old body. Jesus brought life back to him. But here Jesus rises triumphant as the first fruits of salvation that one day you and I our bodies will be glorified we will have a glorified body we won't have this body that rots and decays and gets older and hurts and aches no something different's going to happen and here he looks in and he beholds and in verse 7 there's a face cloth that he looks in and he sees lying there now again, over and over again, it keeps mentioning that he sees these things, sees these things. And when he looks in, he's going to see an image of the sacrifice of Jesus. He sees lying there the linen cloths that are covered up, I mean, that are unwrapped, no body there. One of them, it says, is folded in its place. And what we get here is an image of one of the Jewish holy days that we haven't spoken of yet because it's a fall holy day called the Day of Atonement. It was the sixth of the holy days. And at the Day of Atonement, what would happen, it was in Leviticus 16, the high priest would come in. It was the one time of the year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Now, if you don't know what the Holy of Holies is, in the temple, God instructed how it was to be built. And there was courts and then you would go into the actual temple. In the temple, there was a holy place where priests could go. But then there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And in that place, only the high priest could go. And he could only go there once a year. He would go on the Day of Atonement. And when he entered there, he had to carry in with him. Or he would take two sacrifices. Now, look at this from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 44, it's speaking of this. Again, why Jesus was wearing linen, I want you to see this. Verse 17, chapter 44. When they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments. They shall have nothing wool on them while they minister at the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen undergarments around their heads and linen undergarments around their waist and they shall not bind them with anything that causes sweat. So get this. Once a year, I think I've got a picture of the high priest here. Once a year, the high priest, he would be dressed in splendid uh, garments and he would take off those splendid garments. Um, the high priest he would take off. You see him in his splendid garments there. But once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he would strip down to only linen garments. And he would enter into the Holy of Holies. And get this, when he walked into the Holy of Holies, what he saw was the Ark of the Covenant. 
And the priest would come, and, and this is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant there. He would walk in, he would see the Ark of the Covenant. It's uh, about half a meter wide by a meter long. So it's not a huge box. It had the Ten Commandments in it, Aaron's rod, some manna. Those were the things in it. And he would come and make two sin offerings. One sin offering was for himself and his family. He would offer a bull. The other sin offering was for the nation of Israel. He would have two goats. One of the goats would be selected. He would kill a goat, put the blood over the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the spot between the two angels' wings. And the other goat's head would be covered in blood and allowed to go free. He was the scapegoat. But the priest, when he went in there, he was essentially marching to his death. Get this, the priest, when he went in there, if the sacrifice wasn't accepted, if he had sin that he had not dealt with in his life, he would come in, and because he might die, they would tie a rope around his foot. Because if the priest fell over and died, they had to get him out of there. So the priest would come in, he would have bells around his outfit, uh, around the rope, in order that you would hear him moving. But if you stopped hearing the bells, you assumed the priest was dead, and they would take the rope and they would pull out the priest. The priest would essentially walk in to make a sacrifice to his death. And when the priest came out, if the sacrifice was accepted, if it was received, he came out and he said one word. And the whole nation, they're waiting. Will our sacrifice be accepted? And he would say these words, forgiven. Forgiven. That, that the sacrifice has been accepted. It's taken. It's worked. And now we get a picture of a place of death. Hebrews calls Jesus our high priest. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet is without sin. So our high priest goes into the place of death to offer himself as the sacrifice. He's not going to offer a goat. He's not going to offer a Passover lamb. He is the Passover lamb. He is the atonement sacrifice. And that word atonement, the Hebrew name is Yom Kippur. The Hebrew word Kippur has the idea of covering, to be covered. But when the translator William Tyndale was trying to figure out what to do with this word. There's no English word that gets the idea of atonement accurate, I mean, the idea of Kippur accurate. So he created a word. At, one, with. At, one, meant. At, atonement is the word. He created the word atonement because the idea of Yom Kippur is that we are now able to be in right relationship with God. We can be at one with Him. 
And that's what they were wondering each year. Will we be in right standing with God for one more year? So he, in verse 6, it says, Peter saw and he beholds it. And he sees, it makes a sort of a big deal about this. He sees linen cloths, but then he sees a face cloth. So they would wrap his body and then they put a face cloth over him. And he sees the face cloth neatly folded, sitting in a different place. Why does it emphasize that? Well, I heard Charles Swindoll talk about this one time. And he said when a carpenter went to do his work, a carpenter would be at a project and he'd be doing the work. And when he was done with the job, he would be working in somebody's home doing carpentry work. And when he was finished, he would wash himself off with water. He would dry himself with a towel and he would neatly fold the towel and leave it for the family when they came home. And when they saw that towel, that towel was a message from the carpenter to the owner of the home, this, it's finished. I finished the work. The work is done. It's completed. That's what the towel was meant to see, uh, say. And Peter looks in and he sees the towel lying there and he beholds it. He sees the linen and he goes, it's finished. He's finished the work. The sacrifices has taken. We don't have to come every year and offer sacrifices any longer. Jesus, Peter here, he understands this. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, this is John, who reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. Now this is the third Greek word for saw. We saw the word saw that means a glance. We saw another word saw that means to behold and to process and go what's happening here. This word means to comprehend. You understand. You understand what's happened. And John sees it and he understands that something has happened here. And it says that he believes. What does he believe? Now the next verse, verse 9 says they didn't understand that he had to rise. They didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So their comprehension still is not fully complete but he seems to have some knowledge of understanding that the sacrifice was sufficient, that our sins are forgiven, that it's taken, that he is the Lamb of God who's died for the sins of the world. He's the atonement sacrifice making us one with God. And he believes. Now we use that word a lot in church, believe. What do you need to do to be saved? Believe on the gospel. Believe the glorious news that while you were sinful and hopeless that Jesus came, lived the life you could not live, died the death that you deserve to reconcile you to God. Believe that. Well, Romans says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, this belief that Scripture talks about, and understand this, it goes beyond mere intellectual belief. What do I mean by that? There are some of you here today 
that your belief in Jesus is I believe he died and rose again. But it may not be what flows from your heart, what you live out of, what's transformed your very being. You see, Scripture says the demons believe. Satan believes that Jesus died. He believes that Jesus rose from the dead. He believes it intellectually. But his trust isn't in it. His hope isn't in it. His reason for living isn't there. Now that's the type of belief we're to have. A belief that Scripture says turns you into a new creation where you're born again. You're, you're not the same. You move from death to life and your whole rest of your life is lived because you're forgiven because he's redeemed you our life is transformed by this for the Christian who says I believe but yet you see no transformation in their life that doesn't seem to line up with the belief we see in Scripture it's not just a mere intellectual no it's your heart your, your heart, your heart's what your life flows out of. Your whole life is transformed by the fact that he has risen from the dead. Now, they didn't understand this, we can tell, because not fully. They go back to their homes. But in verse 11, Mary Magdalene, she's weeping. And in verse 12, it says she saw two angels in white. This word is back to the word behold. She sees two angels and she stops and really looks at it. Why does she do that? Why does she look at these two angels and wonder what is going on? Look at where the angels are. It's very clear. This is verse 12. Two angels. One at the head. One at the feet. And between there was where the sacrifice was made each and every year. And they would wonder, is it going to take? Are we going to be forgiven? And here, Mary walks in and she sees that exact same image and she takes hold of it. What's going on? Has it taken? She looks at it and she beholds it and she processes. She still doesn't get it and she asks the angel... The woman asked her, why are you weeping? She's going to be asked this a few times. Signifying, you don't need to weep at this, Mary. What you're seeing is cause for celebration. It's cause for rejoicing. But she's weeping and they, she says, where have you taken my Lord? Verse 14, having said to this, she turned and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know it was Jesus. The word here for see is to behold. She does take a glance, but she doesn't understand it's Jesus. Something keeps her from seeing this man that she loves, that she has followed in his glorified body. She can't fully somehow comprehend that it's him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Same question again. Whom are you seeking? I, I love the questions of Scripture especially the questions that Jesus asked. Jesus early in his ministry, in John chapter 1, um, around verse 37 and 38, he asked his disciples this, what are you seeking? Here's what Jesus knows about 
every one of us. This is true of everybody here today, all of us. We are seeking. We're seeking something, whether we acknowledge it or not, we're all out here. We're seekers. And uh, the image that there's a God-shaped hole inside each of us and we're seeking somehow to, to fill our lives with satisfaction, with meaning. And we'll do that sometimes with a who. Sometimes we'll do that with a what. Could be wealth, comfort, ease of living. Could be success. Could be security. Could be our reputation, what other people think of us. That's going to give us meaning if people think of me a certain way. Could be a new job. It could be our marriage or the marriage that we hope to have. For many, it's, I want to be happy. If I can fill my life with, with happiness. And here, Jesus asked her this question. She is seeking, and the question is, whom are you seeking? And every day when we wake up, we answer that question. Every day. You go throughout your day, each day, and your life declares what you're seeking. What you're looking to find meaning and purpose and value in. Where are you going? And here Jesus says, whom are you seeking? She thinks he's the garden. She says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where. And Jesus in verse 16 says to her, Mary. Now this is in Aramaic he speaks to her. Would have been actually Miriam, he says. And at her name, she turns to him and says, Rabboni, which means my, my, my teacher. That's what she would call him, my, my teacher, it's you. She's been weeping and mourning, where are they? And here he is, my teacher, you're here. And Jesus tells her, don't cling to me. Go tell the disciples. And listen to what he says here. He says, I am ascending to my father. Now hear this, in John's gospel, the word father is used 186 times. But only once, only once in the entirety of the Gospel of John does it say this, and your father. He says, tell him that I'm going to send to, to both my father and, and your father. Up until this point, we've never heard that phrase, your father. Why? But because before Jesus went and paid the price for our sin, before Jesus went and reconciled us to the Father through being that sacrifice, through being the Lamb of God, through being the atoning sacrifice, until before he did that, we were known as children of the enemy. That's what Scripture teaches. I don't like teaching that. Well, the world wants to say, hey, all children are children of God. The Bible simply does not teach that we're all children of God. It teaches that we're made in God's image. No. We're adopted in as children of God as we believe. And Jesus for the first time says, He's your Father. He's my Father and now He's your Father. You can count Him as your Father. You now have right relationship with Him. Before this, sin kept you from having right relationship with Him and now you can have it. Isn't that glorious news, church? Our relationship with God has been restored. 
has been brought back. We're at one with him. And, and I love Mary's response to this. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Again, the Greek word here for seen, to see, means to understand, to, to, to comprehend. It, it, it's come together. And for all of us here today, uh, you've seen something about Jesus. Some of you have just glanced. Uh, I see there's this guy named Jesus, come to church with my family, come to church here, and I hear about this guy Jesus, but I just give him a passing glance. I don't really stop and behold him. Others will take a moment to behold. Who is this Jesus? He's the most talked about person in the history of the world. We need to take time to process, who is he? Do I believe? Is he who I'm seeking? You see, news can affect people in different ways. If you turned on the news and you heard that there's a very tragic, deadly form of cancer, the kind of cancer for which there's no cure. You would hear that news and go, that's very tragic, that's very sad. But if you receive the news that you have that tragic, incurable form of cancer, it would affect your life very, very, very differently. And for many of us, we see Jesus about like that news that, hey, there's a deadly form of cancer. And we go, well, that's interesting. But it doesn't transform everything about us. It doesn't change our whole lives. No, when we see that, when we hear that, we go, my whole life is different. And church, I believe with everything in me that there's no better way to live life than in light of the reality that Jesus died and he rose and it transforms everything about us. We're not the same when we believe. We're different. And I love Mary's response. What's her response? Go and tell others. Her life's different. She doesn't just sit on this news. She goes and tells the first missionary after the resurrection we see is this woman named Mary Magdalene who goes and tells. Isn't that beautiful? That's your mission. Our mission is to go and tell others about the risen Savior. It doesn't mean we're all vocational ministry people, but it means every single redeemed child of God, every single born-again Christian has been given a purpose in life to declare His glory to all. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That's what we do. We go to make disciples of the nations. That's what He's called us to do. And here we see Mary. Her response is to go and to tell. So the church, let me ask you, whom or what are you seeking? 
What, what do you think is going to fill that God-shaped hole in your life? Do you see Jesus? Not just glance at him. Not just take a, a minute to behold him, but you understand that he's the only place to go. You understand that he has redeemed you. Do you understand that? Church, today I know that there are those here today who are rejoicing because you believe this. And there are those here today who are going, I've heard this. But my life's never been transformed by it. My life's never been turned upside down. I, I, I don't know if I'm a new creation. If I've ever been born again, and I pray that God would awaken you to life. And that you would believe. That you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. The reality that God did raise him from the dead. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the message of salvation the message of an empty tomb. Lord, may this message never grow old. May it be a message that daily we remind ourselves of this truth. May it be deep in our hearts. May we be born again. And for those who are born again and redeemed, may we live out of our new birth more than we live out of this old, broken, fallen flesh. Lord, sadly, I know there's some here today who have never confessed their sin, acknowledge that they're a sinner, and that they can't be good enough and work hard enough to be redeemed. The only hope they have is in a Savior who went to the cross, who took sin upon him, the sin of the world, and died, but death could not hold him. And Lord, for all who believe that death will not hold us either. So Lord, I pray if there's any here who don't believe this message, not just believe it intellectually, but believe it unto salvation. Believe it in a way that their heart believes that this is where their hope is. I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would do the work of allowing them to see who you are, and that they would boldly confess with their mouth, I believe in Jesus. And that in their hearts they would believe and live by this. Lord, if there's any here today who need salvation, I pray that they would trust in you. They don't have to pray a special prayer, though they can pray. No, it's they move from death to life as they believe and hope and trust. And Lord, to us who are here today who have trusted, keep reminding us of the good news of who we are. And may we be like Mary, who goes out and declares, I have seen the Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to respond to God in song. I always love to sing. I love the song we're going to sing as it declares the glorious beauty of what we've been talking about in perhaps a more clear way. So I pray when you sing these words, you're not just saying words, but that you're speaking truth and singing truth back to God about what you actually believe. So let's stand and sing to our God.